Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. Um, as everyone knows, Gorbachev passed away on Tuesday and uh, has been lying in state, has been buried, I believe, today. Uh, so, yes, as the title says, who, who was Gorbachev? Uh, what did he stand for? Um, I think that we should, you know, there's going to be a lot of discussion about the crimes and, you know, positives and negatives of Gorbachev. I think we should start with uh, some music from, <laughs> from the 1980s, which was uh, made in his honor. Um, and then we can start, start the discussion on whether, you know, a crime was committed. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share this one here. Uh, here we go. This one here. Clap your hands for Mikhail Gorbachev. So I'm um, just going to share this one. Here we go. Oh, wow. Those pants. Yeah. Can you hear? Oh yes, and he is really, really special. His name is Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev. All right, there you go. So uh, <laughs> clap your hands. Is this another example of the Soviet cult of personality? <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe. It, it sounds like it, right? So I actually don't know who this artist is, but um, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of really um, interesting music uh, from the late 80s, which is a, a, a bunch of different songs dedicated to Mikhail Gorbachev. And wow. we'll be playing another one later, as well as the uh, infamous uh, Pizza Hut commercial and also a Louis Vuitton advert, which he appeared in as well. Uh, so we, that one's that one's just a print. So we'll, right. we'll talk about that too. We'll add that to it as well. But yeah, um, there we go. Clap your hands for Mikhail Gorbachev. So I don't know, Chris. I don't know if, where you wanted to start with this. Uh, we can talk about you know his birth and who he was and where he came from. There's a a nice thing I found on his official Gorbachev Foundation website. If you want to read right. that, I don't know if you've got something specific. Uh, what do you have in mind? Well, to be honest, where I it seems like you've started a little bit before me. Um, I basically st started my research at the point where he came to power. Um, so yeah, okay. by all means, take, take sure. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's let's read up here. I'll bring it up here on the the main page. Uh, so this, like I said, is from his main. Uh, sorry, from his foundation. So let me just share this here. Uh, the Gorbachev Foundation, and one second, let's dig it up here, and it gives you a short sort of um, detail of his life, where he was from, uh, where he was born and all this kind of stuff. So let's just put that up there. And it's sort of how he would choose, how his foundation chooses to depict him, which is actually quite revealing in my opinion. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, I'll read this. Let me read this. It's not too long. So Mikhail Gorbachev was born on March 2nd, 1931 in the village of Privornyoy in a very complicated named district uh, in the south of Russia. Uh, born to a Ukrainian peasant family who moved to the Stavropol territory from the Russian Voronezh region and from Chernigov province in the Ukraine. His father, Sergei, worked as a combine harvester operator, very Soviet, 
in June 1941, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union. In August, he was drafted to the regular army and put in charge of a combat engineering squad. He was in many historic battles of the war. In the end of May 1944, the Gorbachev family received a killed-in-action notice for his father. Uh, for three days, the family was weeping for the loss, but, um, but fortunately, it was a mistake. Mikhail's father had survived, though he was badly wounded in the leg. For his exploits during the war, he got, a, uh, got government medals, Medal for Bravery, and two Orders of the Red Star. After he returned home, Sergei Gorbachev continued to work as a machine operator and taught Mikhail to operate a combine harvester. Uh, father knew perfectly how to operate the combine, and he taught me, Gorbachev recalls. After a year or two, I could adjust any mechanism. I am particularly proud of my ability to, de to detect a fault in the combine instantly just by the sound of it. For outstanding results in bringing the bumper crop in 1949, Mikhail Gorbachev was awarded the Order of the Red Banner of Labor. He was only 17 then and became the youngest recipient of this high award. So that's quite interesting. I didn't know that. But he was the that youngest recipient of the Red Banner of Labor. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty big, big deal. Um, so, yeah, his mother, Maria Gorbachev, was a farmer, and all her life she worked on a collective farm. Uh, purges of the 1930s affected the Gorbachev family. In 37, Mikhail Gorbachev's grandfather, uh, Gopkala, was arrested on charges of being a member of a counter-revolutionary Trotskyite organization. He was kept in prison for 14 months under investigation and torture. Assistant Attorney General of Stavropol saved him from execution. In December 1938, he was released from prison and returned home. In 39, he was once again elected chairman of the collective farm. The other grandfather, Mikhail Gorbachev, Andrei Gorbachev, initially was uneager to join a collective farm and farmed by himself on his individual farmstead. In 33, there was a severe drought in southern Russia, and the region was hit by mass famine. His three children out of six died of starvation. In spring 34, Andrei Gorbachev was arrested for not fulfilling the sowing campaign plan. Uh, there was nothing to sow. As a saboteur, Andrei was, Gorbachev was sent to hard labor camp in the Irkutsk region, Siberia worked as a timber feller. Uh, two years later, in 35, on account of his good work, he was released before his sentence term expired. He came back to Privolnoye Privol and immediately joined the collective farm where he worked to the end of his life, uh, enjoying great respect among his fellow farmers. So this is where we get to, of course, Gorbachev himself. Uh, he lived with his grandparents mostly, and then he was doing extremely well in school. In those early school years, he developed a passion for knowledge and interest in everything new, and he kept those makings for the rest of his life. His hobby was a drama studio at school where he performed on the stage. Once the drama studio went on a tour to the villages within the region, the young performers earned some money from tickets to their performances. And with this money, they bought 35 pairs of shoes for kids from very poor families who had been barefoot at school. You still there, Chris? Yeah, I think so. I'm There we go. Uh, in 1950, Gorbachev graduated from high school with a silver medal. His father insisted that the youth continued his education, and Mikhail, Ch Mikhail chose the Moscow State University as the best university in the USSR. He was enrolled to the university without entrance exams and even without an interview. He was summoned to the university by cable saying that he was enrolled and provided with a hostile accommodation. There were several reasons for that. Gorbachev's origin as a farmer, his work record, a high government award, the order of the banner of the Red Banner of Labor, and also the fact that in 1950, when doing his last year of studies at the secondary school, he was admitted candidate member of the Communist Party. Gorbachev recalls, my years at the university were not, were not just extremely interesting, but also a period of hard work. I had to do a lot of catching up. I knew I had knowledge gaps from my village school. The gaps made themselves felt, especially at first when I came to the university. But frankly, I always had a lot of ambition. Uh, the Moscow University gave me fundamental knowledge and an intellectual potential that determined my career. It was here that the long process of reassessing my country's history its present and its future began and continued over so many years. 
When a university student, Gorbachev met his future wife, Raisa Titarenko. She was also a student at the Moscow University philosophy faculty. She was one year his junior, but joined the university, the university one year before him. They married on the 25th of September, 1953. Having received his, his law degree, cum laude, in 55, Gorbachev returned to Stavropol. At first, he was assigned to a job in the Stavropol Territorial Prosecutor's Office. In Stavropol, Gorbachev was remembered from his activity in the Young Communist League branch at schools as a committed youth and a gifted organizer. So almost at once, Gorbachev was offered a position of an assistant director of the propaganda department at the Territorial Committee of the Komsomol Youth League, the YCL. So his work record at the prosecutor's office lasted only 10 days. In September 56, Gorbachev became first secretary of the Stavropol City Komsomol Committee. Uh, in April 58, he was elected second secretary of Stavropol Territorial Komsomol Committee and uh, March 61, first secretary of the Stavropol Territorial Komsomol Committee. In 66, Gorbachev becomes first secretary and bureau member of the Stavropol City Communist Party Committee. Uh, in August 69, second secretary of the Stavropol Territorial Communist Party Committee. Then in April 70, Gorbachev was approved as the first secretary of the Stavropol Territorial Communist Party Committee. The most important element on, in his program for developing the Stavropol region was the rational placement of agricultural facilities, their specialization, the establishment of advanced poultry farms and agrarian complexes, the introduction of industrial production processes, the construction of the Greater Stavropol Canal, and of the irrigation and water supply systems that were vitally important to the region with its risky farming because dry lands accounted for one half of its agriculture area and the completion of modernization in the light and food industries. Um, so I'm just going to skip a little bit ahead here. Uh, yeah, so basically did lots of regional development stuff in Stavropol. Yep. Health uh, met, and also he also at this point meets a lot of the further up higher ranking members of the party, such as Alexei Kozygin and Yuri Andropov, which is very important because he is the one who brings him into the Central Committee later and pushes him yes. uh, later. Yuri Andropov being uh, one of the two guys that died in the 80s uh, with very short terms. Yes. Um, okay. So, yeah, then, uh, da, 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 talking about Raisa. Yeah, so um, you can see from 57 to 78, there's 20 years there, which is not really, well, 10 years there, that's not really detailed, but he's in Stavropol doing party stuff. And then so November 78, the plenary session of the CPSU Central Committee. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he gets <laughs> membership. Uh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, I think he gets membership, as you said, from high school here. Wasn't it? Uh, yeah. So, yes. So 78, he gets on the Central Committee. Um, yeah. So November November 27th, 1978. The plenary session of the CPU Central Committee elects Gorbachev Central Committee Secretary. On December 78, he and his family moved to Moscow. Okay. His yeah. first job was overseeing agriculture. He had traveled extensively in the USSR and made official visits abroad. And very soon, Mikhail Gorbachev displayed himself as a responsible, efficient, and principled political figure. Two years after he moved to Moscow, he became member of the Politburo, the supreme body of the Soviet Communist Party. Then it goes on to the stuff that we all know about. In March 85, Gorbachev, Gorbachev is elected General Secretary of the CPSU Central Committee. Uh, Gorbachev initiated a process of change in the Soviet Union, what was later called Perestroika, Glasnost and Openness, became Perestroika's driving force. 
a program of reforms was planned to put the nation's economy on track to a socially oriented market economy. This policy put an end to the totalitarian regime in the USSR. Mm -hmm. In 1990, state power uh, moved from the Communist Party, the Congress of People's Deputies of the USSR, the first parliament in Soviet history made on the basis of free, democratic, and uncontested election. Okay, so yeah, this pushes us to 1990. Uh, I'm not going to read the rest because I think that's where we all kind of, well, this is where our discussion is going to be about perestroika, yeah. glasnost, the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, his relationship with the West. Um, I've read this before. So one thing, I'm just, I'm just going to notice one thing. So after the breakup of the Soviet Union, what was very interesting here is he makes a run for uh, president in 1996 in Russia and gets 0.5% of the vote. So a complete yeah. um, disgrace, basically, a complete failure. And later... Um, he set up the, one second here, Social Democratic. Here we go. So uh, Gorbachev took part in the 96 election in Russia and was nominated to stand for the Russian Federation presidency. Gorb and it says this on his website, Gorbachev is a convinced Social Democrat, the founder of the Russian United Social Democratic Party, the Social Democratic Party of Russia, and the All-Russia Public Movement, the League of Social Democrats. I've looked into those uh, organizations and all of those are basically... Um, Defunct, they no longer yes, operate. All, I think there was a Liberal Party as well. Uh, right, 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 right. So, I mean, just off the bat, there's a big question mark there. It's like, well, if this guy was a communist, you know, yeah. through and through and was a Leninist as he always attempted to describe himself historically, yeah. then why didn't he stay with the Communist Party or make a new Communist yeah. Party? Uh, he abandoned, you know, that even any of the, 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 the trimmings of, of, of being a communist, it seems, if you look at his political career after 96 or after 1991 i guess so yeah yeah go ahead what are your thoughts on that even with a lot of stuff that he sort of espoused like you, you said his relationship with the west what i think is even more telling is his relationship with the communist party so when he got yeah. in in the in 85 he was uh proposed by andrey grom gromico who was one of the ambassadors in the politburo um he was one of brezhnev's ambassadors to the us americans knew him as a Sort of a hard, hardliner, emotionless, uh, humorless, typical Soviet bureaucrat. Somebody deep distrust for the West. So this guy poses mm. for uh, Gorbachev to be put on to be the general secretary, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and none of them really knew anything about Gorbachev other than his sort of CV for his party work. And as you've just read there, a lot of it sounds good like it doesn't expose yeah. that he's gonna do anything radical like there doesn't seem to be any hint that anything's gonna go on uh when he got in he immediately moved people in different posts he got rid of people by forcing them into retirement people that he knew would oppose him even the person yeah. who, who proposed him in the first place he moved into the position of head of state which was at that point pretty much a symbolic role with little power but he knew that the Politburo could and would remove him. And this was something that haunted him throughout his entire uh, tenure as General Secretary, to the point of that's why he proposed for the uh, Council of Deputies to make him president of the Soviet Union, because then he couldn't be removed by the mm. Politburo. That was the entire reasoning for being president instead of General Secretary. Mm. That's why it's mm. always the first and last president of the Soviet Union. Also, Right, right, right. I also believe he, he ran unopposed, right? Unopposed for that role as well. There was no one else who actually ran, right? Yeah, it, it was it was just it was 
elected by the council of deputies because he didn't want it to be an open election to the populace in case he lost. <laughs> right, right. Because right, he was right, already right, at this right, point right. deeply unpopular, but he, as we know, he was on a crusade to do something quite intentional, despite what he has said in certain interviews where he's claimed that, oh, I didn't mean to just dissolve the Soviet Union. He's, he almost sort of does it in a, in, do you know how people say with Abraham Lincoln, uh, where they use that quote, if I could have ended the Civil War without freeing any slaves, I would have done. They sort of right, use right, that right, right, right. to the point, if, if I could have saved the Soviet Union by just getting rid of communism, I would have done. But that doesn't seem to have been the goal. It always seemed to have yeah. been the complete dismantling of the system that Breakout. he seemed to, between him and his wife and a few of the conspirators, and it seemed that yes. by the time yeah. everyone else caught on to what was happening, it was too late. There'd already been at this point yeah. uh, three different attempts of reform. There was a reform by under I've gone so under Brezhnev, his yes because as a lot of viewers will know under Khrushchev, Khrushchev one of the things that people point out of him is he didn't do collective leadership. He took all the roles and he didn't really speak to the rest of the Politburo for advice, and that made him very unpopular. So when he was eventually deposed. Brezhnev did split those roles up. He was only the uh, general secretary of the Communist Party. He wasn't head of state. Alexander, so I've got this name here. Koizhin was the premier, and he proposed these first set of reforms in the 1979. Uh, basically, it was a set of changes of the economy introduced to introduce profitability and sales as a key in. Yeah indicators of entrepreneurial success um, didn't go very far then they tried more reforms in 73 and 79 again they weren't implemented at all so then at this point we're well into what history calls the area of stagnation so you've got Brezhnev who yes. had a fair rule you could argue um, after Khrushchevism maybe Brezhnev was an attempt to sort of bring things back in back in line in a limited limited sense, especially with the Brezhnev doctrine, the idea of like, a lot of interventions in like Prague Spring, Afghanistan were were, were yeah. Brezhnev's idea of sort of solidifying yeah. the socialist camp and yes, fortifying it. Uh, yes, so you, you could argue that it was some sort of limited sort of tankyish action. That's <laughs> where we literally get the word tank from. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, yeah. After that, yeah. guys, one that you talked about earlier on, Yuri and Andropov, who was only mm -hmm. in office two years and then died, and then the next guy, yeah. Christine, uh, Constantine Chernikov, Chernikov. Was only thirteen yeah. months died. So by the right. time yes. came along, I think a lot of people were just happy that there was a young man, about fifty, young, young enough that it stopped. Yes. Yes. People. People were sick as we are. In, especially Americans are now, of electing oxygenarians. Like, why are all these old men coming in and they can't last? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. leader of the Soviet Union who was actually born in the Soviet Union. That's right. I mean, as, yeah. as opposed to the Russian Empire. Do you think he was born in, yes. was it 23? So six right, years right, right. Uh, Yes, yes, that, that's right, that's right. Um, well, actually, I think it's, it's uh, well, wasn't it 31, sorry? Wasn't it 31? 31. 31. Born in 31. He's born in 31. Yeah. So t 10 years into the into the Soviet Union. Yeah. 
Yeah. He was a baby compared yeah. to the rest of the it's, central committee. Yeah, yeah, he was much younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is obviously like it's 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 a uh, is quite a quite a big thing we've taken off the chew today because you know where, where do you sort of uh, you know there's, there's the leadership element there's the you know the the generational thing about the leadership structure then you've got the sort of the reforms the profit sort of whether profit was being used or how it was being introduced the the, the price controls subsidizations loads of different elements and then the nationalism yeah. too i mean if you're going further to the breakup uh the actual beginning of the breakup i mean just some of the stuff that you know i've been watching a couple of documentaries and reading a couple of things one thing that does that did surprise me is that this term perestroika um when it came out and there was a, there's a third word acceleration which i've forgotten russian yes, for, but, uh, um, yeah right 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 so these that one was actually first that one came out first the, the acceleration term and then then it was perestroika and the thing that stood out to me is that it wasn't very clear what perestroika actually was it was a no. almost a slogan and then it started to mean certain things and it started to be it was almost built on the fly on the move this this what it actually meant what was it going to be was it going to be uh, privatization was it going to be uh, a getting rid of of wholesale prices controlled by the state was it going to be this or that you know it was quite it didn't it, from a lot of the interviews if you look at the the guys who are still around who were there they say they, they wasn't particularly clear and that was one of the problems and that's one of the things that um you know if you're talking about a characteristic of, of the leadership is that there is a degree of indecisiveness from from gorbachev he did sort of show indecisiveness and an ab, uh, and a lack of resoluteness and and then also inconsistency too i mean so um a lot of western um uh, portrayal right now that's going around um talk about the fact that he didn't send the tanks uh into uh, berlin and to into the eastern european republics and countries uh to stop the protests and to stop the coups and stopping the counter-revolutions and all of this kind of stuff but actually in some cases he did for example in georgia they, he did send tanks in, and he did send tanks into i think abkhazia so the idea that he didn't do anything um you know it doesn't suit the, the grand what's that Lithuania as well. Lithuania, right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. They sent the special forces in. So the, the idea that he didn't send anyone in, it's like, well, he did. He just didn't send. He just, he tried to sort of play a both, sort of, I'll try yeah. not to send too many troops, but I'll send some troops, but not enough to deal with the solution. So you ended up with this indecisive sort of half measure um, yeah. in, in dealing with, with those protests and, and dealing with... I think with the a lot of his sort of ideology and his uh, sort of continuity has all, all been decided and canonized out after the fact but i don't mm -hmm. think you could have read the book in 1985 what does gorbachev believe because i don't think he really believed much of anything and i think from what we've sort of read i think a lot of it he doesn't really understand how he's in the position that he's in in the first place mm -hmm. he's a man who's mm -hmm. ill-suited to be in the role that he found himself in purely yeah with the incompetence of the people around him by the sounds of it well, I, I think that that is this is the the, the part that I think is, is certainly damning for the Soviet system is that you had uh, this individual come in, uh, you had two two senior leaders die from old age and illness, or mostly from illness, but um, and then this third individual come along and then make all these decisions and and make poor decisions and not having some sort of accountability or some sort of a means to you know recall or I, I don't know but just. From, from whichever way you look at it, it's obviously clearly a, there was a leadership crisis. There was a deep leadership crisis from the late 70s until it, it fell apart. Uh, and, and yeah, and the fact that Gorbachev even got in 
was a symptom of that. And then Gorbachev then became its sort of prime symptom of a leadership crisis. He was he was not. I I, I mean, again with current uh, talking about it today, the main thing you'll notice about the uh, outpourings and comments being made on Gorbachev is that his sort of biggest supporters are people like Boris Johnson, um, European Union leaders, uh, Biden, the West. You're talking about Western leaders. Western leaders are singing his praises, whereas Russian people, people who lived underneath him, are not as big of a fan of him. So, yeah, yeah it, it's politically um, you know, useful. It's, it's convenient for them to sort of say, oh, look, this is the man that we should have. Yeah, I thought it was interesting with the BBC, uh, their coverage, the funeral, where on on the video, they actually pointed out that said hundreds of people attended the funeral. Mm. And when you watch the video, it is. It's a very sorry sort of affair for what you expect. Like, <laughs> like I'm yes. pretty sure they even asked people to sat, to line up single file so that it looks a little bit longer. But it, it literally was right. hundreds, where the website says, they said, right. let's, let's say thousands, so it looks bigger, but it, it was hundreds. Definitely. Yeah. The fact that it wasn't a state funeral, the fact that Putin, I'm too right. busy to go, that felt, <laughs> <laughs> it says a lot that it's a story, but no uh, comments yeah. representatives went, yeah. because why would they? You know that the people, if, if there wasn't the fact that the Ukraine war crisis is going on, you know that the Clintons would be there, Obama would be and they'd, they'd be the people wanting to make the speech. Sure, sure, sure. Mike yeah. Reagan would want to be there to speak for his dad and... <laughs> Mm. I mean, actually, that's quite telling, actually, because um, in preparing for this episode, I quickly skimmed over the funeral of Andropov and just to see who's standing and to see in what health condition Chernikov uh, is in. Uh, you know, was he, they, they said that he was already dying when he took office. Um, but nonetheless, what's interesting is Margaret Thatcher actually went there and was, you know, she goes and sees the, the coffin and, and makes her, pays her respects. Um, and the fact that we, the Western leaders aren't doing that now does tell us how, yeah. how actually much further in, ter in terms of tension and conflict the West and East are compared to even then during the Cold War. You're talking about a time yeah. when you know, Margaret Thatcher went in, uh, was there. Uh, that didn't happen this time. Yeah, this, Compare this, this, this funeral to what we had last week of Alexander Dugan's daughter, her funeral. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. you, whatever you think about Dugan, Dugan, or even if you don't know anything about Dugan, you know that Dugan is a symbol of at least Russian anti-Americanism. Mm -hmm. And the fact that mm -hmm. that funeral got the, the reception that it did, the size that it did, and Gorbachev has got so little, that contrast is a message in itself. Yeah, you yeah absolutely. Deep into Dugan's sort of philosophy or, or his theories to, yeah. to yeah. know that yeah. the message being sent by the, these two. Well... Um, uh, I think I think what we should watch now is I think we should uh, we should jump in with the the Pizza Hut commercial because uh, I think it, it, in itself it has a bit of political commentary in it. So uh, it really does. Let's, let's watch and just react as we go along. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's just put this on. Let's put this on. Uh, here we go. Это из-за него у нас в экономике бардак. 
благодаря ему у нас новая возможность. Это из-за него у нас политическая нестабильность. Благодаря ему у нас свобода. Полный хаос. Перспективы. Политическая нестабильность. Да благодаря ему у нас есть и Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from pizza. Oh, there you go. There, <laughs> there it is. What's amazing is that this. What did you catch the date at the beginning of that? Ninety-seven or ninety-eight, I believe. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, still, the street still would have been <laughs> absolutely filthy at that point. Like, obviously, you had right, the crisis, right, 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 right. crisis in '93, yeah. but obviously, the, the, the Russian state at this point is is a, is a rump state. <laughs> in 1997, they, they've just had yeah. an election. Yeah. That I mean, yeah, they actually do have a. Uh, there's an economic. There's a... oh. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought I thought you froze, froze again. Yeah, so the, at that point they just had a, an election, I believe, that the Communist Party won, but then Bill Clinton helped them sort of cheat to get Yeltsin elected by the skin That's of right. his teeth again. That's right. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, yes. So actually, that the election. So if this is '97. That video, the Pizza Hut commercial, Gorbachev would have also taken part in the '96 election election and got zero point five percent vote. So, so I feel like. You know, if the, if the if the Russians were having a discussion of whether they like what Gorbachev have, has done or whether he could do a good job, they already spoke uh, a year before that or two years before that. Yeah, and you're right. Yeah, yeah. That, that would have been the '96 election where uh, Zuganov was would have won, um, but uh, Clinton and uh, Clinton basically, I think they've either they they endorsed him, which effectively distorted the, the voting mechanism. And then also there was something like financing, that they, they, they broke the rules on how much yeah, spending. Yeah, there was some electioneering going on, wasn't um, there? Was... But in terms of actual yeah, votes yeah, yeah, for yeah, yeah. So, Communist I mean, Party yes. in that election. Right, right, right. right. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I think, I don't know if you want to talk about the, yeah, if you want to talk about Perestroika specifically, class ones, but I, I don't know, if you, I, I'm... I find it a bit unwieldy. If you want to go into it, it's you know I've, I've got some stuff about what kinds yeah. of things it meant. So obviously, yeah, I mentioned a bit how unpopular um, within the party he was when he when he first got in. Mm. So I've got okay. yeah, that in his first year, uh, fourteen out of the twenty-three heads of department of secretaries were replaced by him. Uh, basically, he was he was packing the cha chambers with with loyalists. Uh, someone actually wrote here that he actually did that faster than Stalin, Khrushchev, or Brezhnev actually managed to achieve. Uh, he, he was that scared that he was going to get replaced. So, like I said earlier on, where sometimes it feels like he's just stumbling around in the dark and just things are happening, but then certain things like this make me think, well, that seems very calculated to, mm. to, to do that. To, right. Um, so, I've got here. Probably that. So obviously with Glasnost, obviously with the way people were feeling after the era of stagnation and just let down, the idea of Glasnost being this free pass to openly criticise the government and the party, it feels like mm -hmm. just the, the worst timing to do that. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
it's like getting someone absolutely pissed and asking them what what do you think of me really it's like you can't then be shocked when they just start abusing you it's like well why did you get me pissed first <laughs> that, yeah, why, yeah, yeah. Right. at that point that was clear the wrong time to bring in that sort of reform when you're economically at your lowest not in terms of maybe not in terms of gdp but in terms of people's living standards and yeah in terms of yeah yeah, yeah the government like all your leaders keep keep dying like People are losing faith in the political system. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, a, it's a good observation. observation. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you've you made a good point there. That you've got obviously there was this stagnation because of uh, quotas not being met and uh, sort of truancy, as they call it, workers like not being eager to work. Also, a problem with alcoholism, which which he tried to yep. deal with. Uh, he tried to ban uh, alcohol, and um, yeah, so. I think obviously trying to introduce reforms, you do need to do that to try and change things. But the manner in which it was done initially, some of the stuff failed. And yeah. uh, also then I think, I, I, personally, I think that the economic stuff, they could have, you know, changed and done sort of, uh, you know, this sort of Chinese style of, of, of rationalization. Yeah. They could have pursued that in, in a more bottom-up kind of way. But <clears throat> the political side, I think, is, is, is where, they, where it really was dangerous. Playing yeah. with this uh, allowance of nationalists, nationalist uh, movements and parties and sentiment to come into this new uh, political structure, this sort of quote unquote bicameral part in parliament and stuff. That was, I mean, that really, you already had, yes, like you said, um, uh, sort of unhappiness and unease with, with economics, people queuing uh, problems with production and problems with all sorts of stuff like that. Then to sort of, throw in okay well now you know people can start talking about their nation as a separate nation and and, and drive these national sentiments yeah. of course the nationalists then cap capitalized on it straight away they go well you're a lithuanian and if we had a lithuanian country uh it would be way better than this because look how yeah. bad it is and it's been bad for five years or ten years come on let's be lithuanian so the 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 the, the, the political sort of narrative is so easy to spin for the for the nationalists open yeah. up uh, the political space to nationalists at a time when the union is weak. Terrible combination. I mean, yeah. the history is there. That, obviously, that's what we've experienced, obviously, in the UK, in Europe in the past uh, right. decade, at least, with the, with the SNP in yeah. Scotland, with Catalonia. Right. Uh, it's, a, right. it's such a repeated playbook. Like, this idea of yeah. an oligarchy telling you that oh, you'd be better off with our rich capitalists than... The international ones. Yes. Yeah. That was going on in the Soviet Union at that point. This is where we get into the end of the 80s, where the international socialist camp opportunities in there smell weakness and think, well, mm -hmm. the Soviet Union aren't going to react to anything we do. So when the counter revolutions mm -hmm. of 89 happened, they knew mm -hmm. that it was there was nothing like Brezhnev yeah. going to come and help restore order, like what happened in Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Um, and that didn't happen. <laughs> Gorbachev completely ignored yes. what happened in in uh, Czechoslovakia again in Hungary, even when the Poland in, in Romania they literally murdered Ceausescu and his wife. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Anyone think about it? Like, there must have been a better way to handle it than that. They were the only ones to to have been killed. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a good point where we can bring up um, the sort of sum total of of of, of the deaths and economic out, uh, fallout of 
people dying from excess death from economic hardship or whatnot versus you know crackdowns so yes a crackdown does it's a violent thing it's a violent act um but people die uh, right 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 so but it's it's restoring order so if you consider that you know allowing for everything to fall apart and have i mean also bear in mind the movements themselves were not all peaceful either so no. people going and protesting and breaking stuff and burning things and uh you know melotov petrol sort of like and also and also shooting it was it, there was and violence I mean, also in the in the um in the political yeah. acts of the, the, the romania Democrats. For example, the the event that mm. caused the romanian counter-revolution which was a, 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 a like massacre in to, 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 i can't remember the name it begins with t and it's in northern romania um but there was rumors that were circulating of of mass killings in that area due to a crackdown on, on an uprising we now know that that was fabricated by the west that event never happened right the thing right. that caused right. the current revolution to actually the, the catalyst was a made right. event <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i think i think i mean obviously i've got a i'm gonna show a statistics here i've got something from the um well, it's, a, it's a chart that's uh, it's not actually got to get the chart is too small, but we can read the statistics. But just a, just a, just a quick look at the stats on how many people died and how much economic collapse you're talking about. So uh, can you see that? Yeah, we can see that. Um, a decade. So this is just a de decade. But so this actually continues on for longer. Like the decline does not pick up. Um, I think in some cases, uh, I was reading somewhere that most of the former Soviet uh republics as well as eastern bloc countries most of them didn't recover and meet their 1989 levels until 2012 or 2015. there's some outliers who you know maybe got there in 2006 or something like that but yeah. generally uh not, you know there was not a recovery to the same level for 25 years you know, a quarter of a yeah. century of, of lost growth of poverty of prostitution of crime of all sorts of stuff but i mean here's some of the stats so um gdp fell by 50 percent um right so this is yeah this is in the in the in the 10 years 10 years after um if you look at russia russia's gdp fell 40 percent between 89 and 98 so half it's half the economy um some other stats here if you look at the other republics uh 30 to 50 percent of its pre transition levels in the 90s so armenia azerbaijan georgia moldavia Tajikistan. and a quick quick side note here um on the al alcohol campaign, so Gorbachev tried to make people stop drinking. There was a big drinking problem, and still there is a bit of a drinking problem in, in Russia. Um, and one of the things he did was he just decreed um, that the Moldovans uh, put all of this wine uh, and just cut it, just 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 uh, destroy basically, destroy this wine, uh, <laughs> just just basically cut the output, cut the production, so that there wouldn't be wine on the market. And um, even to this day, there's still Moldovian farmers who are keeping the stock. So they just hid their stock in their basements. Uh, some of the, they got rid of some of it. But they didn't ever bring it to market. But the other thing is that the Moldovan, um, the Moldovan country, Moldavia, had uh, the most wine or vineyards per square meter in the world. And they still have not got back to that level. They still have not recovered wow. economically to where they were before. Yeah. So really, when, when the West keep talking about Gorbachev's legacy, regardless mm. of what side of the fence you, you fall on politically, whether you're left or right, from an economic standpoint and a people's livelihood, Gorbachev threw back a good percentage of the world 25 years in terms of economic growth. Uh, 
there's, yeah. there's no way of yeah. looking at that in in a positive way. I mean, I, I always say yeah. say to people, it will ask, with Putin, Putin is the work, the, the Russian revenge for what happened to mm. the Soviet Union. Like, yeah. it's, it's now gangster capitalism in Russia run by some mm. of the most corrupt oligarchs. Yeah, mm. Putin is, is, is a good statesman, but is the top of a very corrupt system. I'm yeah. not saying that yeah. it's corrupt because of him. I'm saying that he, he is doing the best that he can with with an imperfect system. Sure, sure. Uh, you've sure. probably seen those videos that used to go viral, they don't go viral anymore because of what's going on, of a bunch of bosses. Putin would go into this boardroom full of bosses and bollock them. Like, like if you don't get, get this sorted, get this problem sorted, then I'll just come in and, and we'll take it over as a state. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know the video very well, actually. Yeah. yeah. One of the, he, he, he is, uh, so-and-so's name is on this document. Where are you? Yeah. <laughs> Sign this right now. <laughs> he gets up and then apparently he's like, give me back my pen. You know? <laughs> very, very, you know. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, talking about legacy, uh, I think what's particularly almost comical is the BBC, when he died, announced... Today, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last Soviet leader, the man of peace, the man who brought uh, peace, prosperity, and democracy uh, to Russia, to the former Soviet Union, has died. And then uh, other stories. Uh, the dictator Putin, the authoritarian regime in, in Russia, uh, <laughs> the vengeful war in Ukraine uh, is coming next. So it's like, sorry, hold on. Didn't you say there was peace, democracy, and prosperity? Uh, or was that a different time? Is that... Yeah. So, I think that actually, that I was thinking also about this, is that people are looking at Gorbachev as the last Soviet leader and he, him dying is sort of the closing of a chapter of history and it's the, the, the closing of that discussion about the Soviet Union. But actually, in a sense, his death today is almost the end of the post-Soviet era in the sense that you have this unipolar world where the US can dictate and do what it wants and yeah. doesn't have anyone to contest them. This, his, his era is that. That is actually what he stands for. He stands for the post-Soviet um, unipolar invade Libya, invade Iraq, invade yeah. uh, Syria, et cetera, et cetera, era. And that era is actually ending. So him dying today is the end of that sort of dreamlike, naive idea that the West will hold hands when we're all sing Kumbaya and have a, a peaceful you know, post-Soviet liberal democracies and, and develop together. Um, that's yeah. over. That idea is over. That dream is over. Yeah, it's, with, with I think a lot of what Gorbachev did to Russia, it's almost sort of like comparable to sort of like the Treaty of Versailles. But if the if the Russians did it to themselves rather than imposing them, like, it, did, it didn't need to do any of this. And if they didn't, I've seen uh, reports and, and things where people have suggested that if the Soviet Union was to have continued through the nineties, its GDP today mm. would actually have been higher than China's. Right, uh, right. There's literally a period that it could have overcome, but it yes. was chose not to by a very small click of, by the scenes of it, like 30-something leaders of, of Russia. Um, obviously, yeah. after, yeah. in 1991, obviously you had the uh, attempted coup mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union, which was by... Mm -hmm. Uh, sections of the military, not all of it. I think the the generals, the air force weren't involved, which is one of the reasons why it failed. Uh, but mm. most of the KGB were involved, where they captured 
uh, Gorbachev while he was on holiday in Crimea, and they requested for him to resign, and they set up a, a state committee of national emergency. The typical broadcaster of this line, uh, a favourite line of any coup. This is not a coup. But <laughs> it's always a coup. Yeah. When you see it. <laughs> the standard, the first line of a coup. It's not a coup. It's not a coup. Right, 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 right. There's a general reading the news. It's not a coup. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, because Gorbachev refused to resign, that mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the fact that the military weren't united, that was one of the reasons why the coup failed because. If he they needed him to resign to give legitimacy to the committee, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they just yeah. think, why don't we just say that he resigned? <laughs> Who's going to fact yeah. check this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> obviously, I mean, to be honest, factor in that, and that's obviously where, well, well yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, obviously, there's also, um. The other thing I, I think with that, the sort of coup attempt, the, the attempt to try and stop uh, it all was way too late. It was way too late. I mean, I, I think that yeah. there should have been some sort of political intervention in probably 88, uh, yeah, 87. Yeah, I was say, um, if it happened in 88, 89, then... Yeah. Yeah, well, if it happened in 88, I then it could, it could have saved a lot of Eastern Europe. If it happened in 89, at least it could have saved the Soviet yes. Union. Well, I, I, think, I think so. I think so, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing is also you do have to sort of, again, which coming back to the whole leadership crisis, it's interesting that you had, you know, Yeltsin was also a top uh, official, you know, he was very high up in the party. Uh, he was running yeah. Russia uh, and also just took this opportunity as soon as this idea, these, these words, perestroika and glasnost and openness and changing things and, and whatever, um, he was he was gone out the door. He was he was already running. He was already he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm aboard. We're we're going to yeah. break up the union, basically. Um, and you do have this odd meeting in the forest with the Belarusian, Ukrainian, and Russian leader. Where there's lots of different stories about that they were apparently very drunk, and uh, and one of them just uh, one of the guys there just read the statement that we're dissolving the union, and they all sort of agreed to it. So th this is one element which I think is quite. There was obviously lots of political, you know, yeah. calculations and movements and chess pieces and thinking, but some of it also just was stumbling, just a stumbling by uh, political people that 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 they just stumbled. Yeah. And that's something that I think we also should should try and remember is that not all polit politicians make every act as as a calculated move. They do sometimes have no idea what they're doing, uh, yeah. and sometimes make mistakes, uh, yeah, and stupid, silly things as well. Um, yeah, I think people remember politicians. People remember politicians from a lot of the time from the speeches they give, and I think people mm -hmm. forget that political speech writing is a career in itself. When you hear mm -hmm. those really good words that that person you like said, somebody got paid to write those. Stephen Fry used to write, right, 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 right. Tony Blair, and you know he's Tony Blair. So if you're not a very good arbiter you, you get somebody who, who can write much better than you and they make all those pretty sounding words so right when you read it afterwards you think oh this guy really knew what he was doing from the from the outset and so chances are he didn't he probably got handed this yes. speech minutes before reading it and that was probably the first time he ever saw these words <laughs> yeah <laughs> right 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 well i mean on this one specifically um i don't know if we mentioned this when we were talking about the um about the 
leadership hopefuls a few months ago, a few weeks ago, when we talked about uh, Penny Mordaunt, the Conservative yeah. Party leadership. She wrote the book, and apparently there were lines in the book about passing wind after eating breakfast, and obviously she never wrote those words. So that this is point of ghostwriting. So you're talking about people writing speeches. Politicians also endorse books. Sometimes they never even never never they haven't written. They say they've written the book. They haven't even read it. So <laughs> yeah, um, I guess it's another element to it. But the other thing I wanted to show, just uh, just for more sort of lightheartedness, is this one here. So. Gorbachev, uh, interesting things about Gorbachev. So you've already heard the clap your hands for Gorbachev song. I'm going to play another song later at the end. Uh, you've seen the Pizza Hut advert. But Gorbachev also won a Grammy. Um, I couldn't find the music for that one. Sorry. It wasn't music as well. It was uh, the reading of, um, I believe, some sort of storybook, a children's storybook or something. But Gorbachev won a Grammy in the early 2000s. He has a Grammy, um, along with his um, you know, Nobel Peace Prize and everything else. Uh, but this one here is... A Louis Vuitton advert that he appeared in a print. This is this appeared in, in Louis Vuitton from the New York Times. They, they believe it, and uh, they, this caused a lot of controversy. So this is from about 2007, if I'm not mistaken, and um, it's Gorbachev, of course, uh, with his Louis Vuitton bag here. I, I don't know he liked Louis Vuitton, but apparently he does. And he's driving uh, past the remaining section of the Berlin Wall in Berlin. Um, <laughs> The art gallery section, I believe. What's that? What's that? He's driving past the starving rabble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think he, he was, he was, he was, he was thirty-five years late to trying to tear it down for for Reagan. So, uh, but he thought <laughs> just to go check. But um, apparently, this caused a lot of trouble though, because there's a magazine here in the um, <clears throat> in the Louis Vuitton handbag, and this magazine is covering and that picture you can't really see it well here now even if you zoom in you can't see it so i'll explain what it is is talking about the assassination uh, of the killing of uh litvinenko in 2006 <laughs> i believe the former kgb spy who turned coat uh, to yeah. the west and then died from poisoning of some sort of radiation and, and, and obviously oh. everyone says it was putin or whatever so um apparently important. Louis Vuitton said, "Oh no, no, the magazine is just coincidence. It's not. Uh, it's not political at all." <laughs> not political. How can you get <laughs> Gorbachev into an advert and it not be political? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you put Gorbachev and you got the Berlin Wall behind you, and you put a magazine with with that, and that's all by accident. Okay, yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's not political. True. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. But um, yeah, I, I mean, just trying to think other stuff. I mean. So if if I were to, if I were to give one positive thing um, to old Gorby is uh, that at least um, when it came to the specifics on the Angola conflict, um, the Soviet Union had been sending arms and uh, weapons and training and sending some troops and even I think fighter pilots and stuff to Angola to fight the apartheid regime, the South African apartheid regime, yeah. and um, there was a decisive battle in eighty eight and eighty nine. Um, Quito Carnival, which upon losing the apartheid forces lost, they then, you know, basically gave out at the, at the, at the negotiating table. So they agreed to hand over Namibia and have um, elections there. So to basically not, not have, stop having a colony to release Mandela uh, in exchange for the Cubans leaving Angola. Um, but they would also pull back. So, you know, that was under still under Gorbachev's leadership. He could have quite easily reduced funding and he could have quite easily 
um, you know, weakened that support, international yeah. support. So, you know, he didn't fully, you know, we're not talking about a complete, uh, a completely sort of, I don't know, imperialist Western leader. He was still, you know, the Soviet Union still kept on funding and sending um, arms and, and, and subsidizing. Uh, this is, the, the, I think, one, one last thing I want to say is that there's an old term, evil empire, which has been wheeled out now um, by, you know, politicians. And the word empire that they're using there, it implies that the Soviet Union was an empire like the British Empire, that it, yeah. you know, went places and extracted value and all this money came back to the core and they had this yeah. very wealthy capital. And But if you looked, uh, if you look at the the economic relationships, you know, subsidization is the word that comes out that stands out at you, that the yeah. Soviet Union was subsidizing Vietnam, subsidizing Mongolia, subsidizing Cuba, sending them arms, helping them out with this, uh, making deals that, you know, were better trade deals, uh, more preferential to the, to, the, the, to the weaker partner, in a sense. Um, and, yeah, so this is an empire that, and, and ultimately also that actually added to the economic problems was they were trying to help all of these uh, smaller and, and less developed countries um, in, the, in the face of either local um, resistance from a, a national bourgeois or from imperialist forces too. Um, so, yeah. yeah, the idea of the evil empire is a ridiculous concept. It's a ridiculous yeah. concept. There's a lot of modern sort of historical revisionism. Uh, a lot of it brought on by like mm. popular culture, games like Red Alert and stuff, the, the, the Soviet empire. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's to throw wood at history because they're not, nobody's, I think, well, who's going to defend them? And then obviously you get, right. of, even, even on the left, sort of like Maoist ultra maniacs who, Always called the Soviet Union oh, right. social imperialism and, and things like that. Well, obviously, nobody takes them seriously anyway, so they don't really matter. <laughs> um, they don't. No, they don't. So I to just quickly go on. Uh, I sent a, a link over to you. I don't know if you got it. If you could just throw the picture up of the Soviet referendum. Yes, uh, yes, I'll find that for you. Uh, give me a moment. Yes, uh, uh, good point. I feel, I feel, yes. Uh, you sent so it to me. Yes, a, a messenger. One second, sorry, I'm on a different. My, my streaming computer is different. Uh, is it an image you wanted, right? Yeah. If you could send it in the chat, could you send it in the chat? <laughs> oh no, I can't. Private chat here. Yeah. Yeah. different computers. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll find it. I'll, okay, I'll, uh, I can. Okay, give me a moment. But yeah, so this is just to give people context. This is the referendum um, that they held in 1991, right? Yep. This was the people's last chance to preserve the Soviet Union. And obviously, I think the results for it, for anyone who doesn't know this tidbit of history or has the slightest bit of respect for democracy, would shock people to see the actual results of it. Because mm -hmm. it is quite telling. Uh, let me show you. Here we go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. okay. Uh, yes. Okay, there we go. So, Soviet referendum. Do you consider it necessary to preserve... The Union of Soviet Social Republics as a renewed federation of equal sovereign republics in which the rights and freedoms of a person of any nationality will be fully guaranteed. So people that said yes, 77.85%, uh, no, 22.15%, uh, and other statistics that don't matter. So yeah, uh, nearly 78%. We will call yes. it 78%. 78% of the population. So that's 113 million votes said yes, let's keep the Soviet Union, let's keep yeah. it. And yeah, that was ignored. That it's was not. This, this would be a new federation, so it's not the USSR's and the United Socialist 
republics. This it would be United Sovereign Republic. So it doesn't necessarily yes. mean that it's communist or Soviet, but it does mean the uh, geopolitical entity maintains. A lot of people hear that hear that quote by Putin saying that the Soviet Union was the greatest uh, geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. This is what he's referring to because the breakup of it obviously left a lot of a lot of native Russians outside of Russia. Yeah. Yes. Which yes. generally caused the crisis that we're in now in in uh, Ukraine and South Odessa. This mm -hmm. is the fallout of these decisions that were made back then. I yeah. think a lot of people now, as do with a lot of things, even when talking about things like World War II, people like each event to be its own its own episode, like a serialized TV yeah. show. You don't need to watch the previous one, but you do. If you just read about World War Two without knowing about World War One, it won't make sense. World War Two in itself makes more sense if you view it as World War One Part Two. What's going on now with Russia and its neighbours is the direct result of those actions that happened then. And if absolutely those actions happened, these actions would uh, would have no context to happen. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um... I think the also the thing to say, I, I think I forgot to mention this was he got the Nobel Peace Prize um, for apparent uh, East-West relations, uh, an improvement of East-West relations. Um, but the idea of a peace prize for an act that caused multiple wars. I mean, you had a war yeah. in Abkhazia, a war in Georgia. You had war in uh, Transnistria, Moldavia. You had um, inter-ethnic conflicts in uh, in in the in the stands in some of the the, the Central Asian republics. Um, you had then later um, an insurgency in Chechnya. You know the idea that this was a peaceful moment, that this was a, an act of peace, is you know ignores all of the, the death and killing and and, and war, <laughs> like actual war that happened. And and of course, like you said, um, we are where we are today because of the because of this man's leadership, because of this, that is his legacy, a, a, a shattered, broken uh, puzzle piece of, 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 of remaining nations, which are all poorer now and with, with war again. And, and also this idea of the West, uh, an improvement of East-West relations. I mean, certainly an improvement for the West, who were then given access to all of these oil markets, natural resources. And yeah. I mean, um, there's an audio book um, by a guy called Bill Browder, uh, it's called the Red Notice, and it's uh, and Bill Bryder is actually his grandfather was one of the founders of the Communist Party of the USA, um, but he has become a venture capitalist, and he went to the Soviet Union in the early nineties, late eighties, and set up business. He was a stockbroker, and he explains and describes how you had pension funds, uh, bus companies, factories, all sorts of huge state entities, which under the brilliant um, plan to privatize everything, people had shares, they didn't know how much they were worth. So you had these huge companies worth who knows what on the stock market, their real value on, on a real stock market would be millions and millions. They were selling them for $5 or $10. You, you, you literally had arguably, and I, I think this is true, the most, the biggest heist, the biggest theft, the biggest um, ex extraction of wealth in history, because you had all of the wealth of the Soviet Union, all of the Soviet people, in all of the state companies, and in all of the all of that stuff that was um, given away uh, to oligarchs and also to Westerners, um, and and then shipped to, to to London. Now you have these oligarchs living in London, um, and and also all over the world. 
uh, yeah, that, that, that is the legacy in a sense, uh, a stripped country with the people that he supposedly stood for uh, hating him. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and not well, you said all the other day, because obviously we don't call Ukrainian, we used to call uh, Ukrainian oligarchs oligarchs as well. Uh, they don't anymore. I'd call them entrepreneurs or tycoons. Uh, one oh, of the, and what do we call them now? <laughs> now they're on our side. Uh, but one of them died in the war. He was meant to okay. be. Uh, <laughs> He's, he owns one of the biggest sort of uh, wheat exporters in Ukraine. The picture the BBC went with was a picture that it could have just been any yes any Russian. Uh, so you, Ukrainian yes. man with his very very eighties Ukrainian haircut, big suit, big chest, with his uh, order of hero of Ukraine pin that looks exactly like the hero of Russia one, the, the star one. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Morning tycoon. I so the week later, when you had a, a Russian businessman wearing the exact same outfit, looking the exact same way, you called him an oligarch. But these two words now have just become that. If you Google, right, it, right, 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 only now refers yes. to Russians. <laughs> it's like why? Yes, yes, yeah, Ru Russian, right. only Russian. Has to be Russian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I'm gonna I'm gonna play this um, this song now, uh, which is another gem. Uh, uh, we can decide if it's a crime or not. Um, from this era and this one is called uh, uh, well the, the lyrics actually you'll see actually yeah I'll, I'll, I'll let you see if you can understand it hold on one second uh, here we go all right Soviet Weird Al Yankovic. So there you go. Yeah, I think it might be. But uh, yeah, there's the line there. Tavarish Gorbachev, Dosvidanya. So, Comrade Gorbachev, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> 